breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Always great to be with all of you. Thanks for coming back. For listening again, if you're new, hopefully you get a, a little taste of a genuine voice of freedom, liberty, an American Muslim who believes in this country, believes in this constitution, and uh, is ready to share with you some of the stories that fall from the headlines that should be on the headlines and we should spend more time on. Thanks for giving me a week off last week, and uh, we're back full throttle to cover all the issues that are important. This week, I spoke to Sky News about Iran's belligerence, about Iran being closer to war again, according to the establishment media. Another attack in Paris this week. We'll talk about that briefly. And AOC backs out of a seminar, a discussion, a talk, recognizing Yitzhak Rabin of Israel. So first, and probably a little, few other topics to talk about, but first let's talk about Iran. You know, I've constantly, I mean, how many times have we talked in this program about Iran being on the, on the, the media believing that they're on the brink of war? that we're pushing them ever closer, that somehow it would be easier to work with them if we were nice to them, if we befriended them. And no, I understand it's not all black and white. We don't have to be overly antagonistic. We don't have to be overly obsequious and appeasement. But the question is, which is more effective now that we've had two extremes? Not even extremes. I think it's unfair to even call the Trump administration extreme because obviously they don't have the same, you know, I think it's easy to say that the, oh, if you're going to prevent war, your enemies need to believe that you're ready to go to war. Well, I think it's easy to say that President Trump has less of that in his arsenal, meaning that he's been withdrawing our troops, he campaigned on uh, the end of endless wars, he campaigned on bringing our troops home, Etc. But yet, he did push back on the Assad regime with a few targeted attacks after the chemical weapons use. So uh, I think his, you know, his strategy of peace through strength is legitimate. I don't think it's as effective as Reagan's or Bush's, but it's a different time. We just ended truly almost two decades of almost fruitless unfortunately, war in Iraq and especially in Afghanistan. I say especially because in Iraq, we should have probably left this troop presence there more significant. We would have had more return on our investment. And President Obama handed that country back, not to the people of Iraq, but to Iran. To Iran. And they've now hegemonized it. They've uh, begun to take over the not only the civil society but the military structure and they skipped over Iraq and went to Syria first which is where they perpetrated genocide against the Syrian people but 
let's compare those things. When we talk about the Trump administration's approach to Iran, I was asked by a Sky News reporter about whether I believe the Trump administration's approach to Iran has been worse or better. He quoted Cato, quoted the Quincy Institute, and said that they believe that it has set us back, that we were better under Obama. Now, my first response was, fancy this, uh, a Quincy Institute, which is a reconstituted NIAC, the National Iranian American Council, which has proven to be significantly ideologically apologetic with the mullahs, with the theocrats of Iran, and we're in favor of the Iran deal with Obama, with appeasement, with handing hundreds of billions of dollars to Iran. And my point was, I believe the Trump administration and their approach to Iran has been a vast improvement on the horrific results yielded from the appeasement era of the Obama administration. And what does the free world gain? What does it gain from endearing itself to regimes who drive genocides around the world? Over six to 700,000 dead in Syria after nine years of a civil war, with 10 million displaced out of 21 million. And, and if it had truly been a civil war, it would have ended within three or four years. Most of us know that. But then, in 2015, after the beginning of 2011, Russia began flying flights, active flights, over Syria. Russia began dropping bombs, carpet bombing neighborhoods in Damascus, Aleppo, and elsewhere. They claim it was against ISIS, but we know, those of us with family there, that they weren't bombing areas regions with ISIS. If that was true, wouldn't have needed the United States to finally decimate ISIS after President Trump administration took over. Within 6 to 12 months, General Mattis at the Pentagon put the green light on and we finally decimated ISIS. It wasn't Russia that did that. It wasn't Assad that wanted to. They wanted to keep it around as a legitimacy for slaughtering the innocent, the moderate Syrian population. As long as ISIS existed, the carpet bombing, the chemical weapons use became legitimate for the Assad regime. And Iran, the central cancer of Assad's belligerence, was driving it the whole time, and Obama, at the altar of the nuclear deal, was handing everything to the Islamist fascists of the Khomeinists in Iran. So the free world truly has little to gain in endearing itself to regimes who drive genocides like that in Syria. In their client state of Assad, Syria, a regime that is the greatest source of Islamist terror in the region from Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syria, Assad in Syria to the radical Shia Islamist activity in Iraq, in Yemen, and elsewhere, on and on, Iran remains the most belligerent actor in the Middle East. Now, they might be having a hissy fit over there and claim to be closer to war, but are they? Do we really think that handing cash, all these complaints about sanctions, do we think that when we 
hand cash or allow them to build up the so-called economy, that the Khomeinis hand that to the innocent people of Iran? Or do they use it with which to contain and, and weaponize the theocracy of the Islamic Supreme Council of Iran? Do they use it to stay in power? They say sanctions only hurt the people. <laughs> That's what the victims of the sanctions say. That's what the power theocrats, the thugs of Iran and Russia and Venezuela and, and all these other countries that have tasted what happens to them with sanctions as their economies tank and their enemies become stronger domestically, they push out propaganda as we see pushed out by the Hezbollah and others against America that sanctions hurt the people. They do not. And in fact, as their economy weakened, the belligerence of Iran in the region decreased significantly because they didn't have the funds to do it, they didn't have the political will to do it, and the people's revolution has been stronger than ever. Now then, the next question from Sky News was, but therefore you're talking regime change. And my response was, you know, it's it's amazing how we throw on these pejoratives, regime change, as if we are the ones that determine the game of through the games of throne who who should be the next leader, should be the next president, that somehow we put them in place. That might have been the twentieth century playbook, which I vastly disagreed with and did not think was the role of any country, let alone free countries, to go around and pick successors and 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 do a game of thrones of different dictators. Dictatorship is dictatorship. We have to get out of that game because it's not a game. It's people's lives. It's countries. It's nation states. It's vast swaths of population. But in Iran, I think in the 21st century now, it's different. What we're saying is that the principles of theocracy are evil. We will sanction them and in the bad actions they're doing through the spread of Shia Islamist terrorism and Hezbollah and elsewhere, and we will begin to be the voice of the Iranian people and give them a voice. But we will not we will not pick the successor. We will not we will simply endorse freedom, endorse liberty, endorse civil society and an opening of the Iranian society and communities. That's not regime change. That is the appropriate containment of evil, of Islamist theocracy. And I think if you look across the Middle East, Islamism, political Islam, is on the downturn. Hope, I believe, is beginning to peek through the clouds. I might be wrong. Syria is still profoundly depressed as a people. There's still questions about the future of many of the countries. Tunisia, I think, is still continuing to slowly improve. And we see the Abraham Accords that I talked to you about a couple weeks ago that I think show a new strategy where it's not... And this is how I ended the interview with Sky News was that if, if you believe that there's no military solution and that you believe also that appeasement only helps theocrats, especially its economic appeasement, 
and you set parameters by which you will not allow them to get further, such as nuclear armamentation, and we don't want a bipolar nuclear standoff between Saudi Arabia and Iran, then what's the next step? Then you begin to have positive steps forward that you demand more of your friends while you contain your enemies. And our friends are the Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain. We saw with the Emirates, they have begun to not only normalize relations with Israel, but begun to have their imams preach an equality with the Jewish community, a recognition of the state of Israel, a boon for the beginning of normalcy. That is theological reform that we have not seen so far. And I think regardless of how undemocratic, unequal their societies are in these Arab countries, for example, I think that begins to teach their people that there can be equality and moves them forward. And eventually, this is why it has taken them 50 years before these dictators agreed to do that, eventually that will be the end of dictatorship as the people begin to read more, become more educated, and become more, become more at home with Western values of freedom, equality, and liberty. So for the first time, it's not just lip service, handshakes, but we're seeing actual theological defense of equality with Israel. Imams, yes, imams are defending the equality and friendship with the Jewish community with Israel. And you have to realize that since there's no military solution, we have to push forward. And I think, you know, they said all hell was going to break loose when we moved the embassy from Jerusalem, I'm sorry, uh, uh, to Jerusalem. And there wasn't. You see now Erdogan is so upset about the Abraham Accords. Why? Because the Islamists realize that if they lose the pulpit of radicalization in which they've used the demonization of the state of Israel, in which they've used the glorification of the corrupt leadership of the Palestinians as a victimization flag of Islamism if they lose that then they've lost not only any moral grounding whatsoever but they become exposed as corrupt propagandists as corrupt theocrats and you might begin to see the ushering in of a new era in the Middle East and I think this is some of the first steps forward I was skeptical. I was skeptical in 16 of the Trump administration's approach with no doctrine in sight. But we also knew, if you're honest, that there's no military solution. Iraq proved that. Afghanistan proved that. And as long as we maintain some balance of power, ultimately we'll have to begin to have an information war in which we challenge the theocratic interpretations that exist. The question of what to do with Turkey, I think, is a fascinating one now at the time of at the time of this election, because both candidates seem to be sort of dancing around even significant clarity or accountability about Turkey. Let's start with Biden. 
Remember where Biden came from. He made a statement a few weeks ago, three, four weeks ago, that the New York Times highlighted, but it really didn't make much of a splash, but it should have. Because it yielded a response from Erdogan in which he condemned Biden. He condemned him with pure ignorance and arrogance and um, because Biden had the temerity to criticize President Erdogan. And he called for the support of Turkish opponents against Erdogan. Now, the comments were made in an interview last December, almost eight, nine months ago. But a video from the New York Times appeared a few weeks ago and went viral on social media. Biden described Erdogan as an autocrat, criticized his policy towards the Kurds and advocated supporting the Turkish opposition, taking a very, uh, as the Times said, a different approach to him now, making it clear that we support opposition leadership. Now, many in the Turkish community said, oh, is that Biden now defending the Gulenists? And Biden said he was simply emboldening Erdogan's rivals to defeat him, not by a coup, but by the electoral process. Now, that would all be well and good if we were all demented and don't remember anything that happened during the eight years of Obama. Remember, that was the Obama-Biden administration. And the Obama-Biden administration... You, you know, was completely on a different page when it came to Islamists. And notice even today, Biden did not use the term Islamist, probably because he doesn't know what it is and doesn't care to know and doesn't even want to think it exists, even though it's a dominant ideology across Muslim-majority parties. His comments now might be right, but basically the only reason they're right about Turkey and Erdogan being autocratic is... The same reason a stopped clock is right twice a day, as the old saying goes. The threat of Erdogan's radical Islamism and caliphism, neo-Ottomism, is real to the world and especially to Europe. Biden intentionally used the word autocrat instead of theocrat, which would have been more accurate for Erdogan's platform and methods. But make no mistake, Joe Biden is a hypocrite because the Obama-Biden administration supported the Muslim Brotherhood in 2012, which was a Sunni Islamist theocratic party. They claimed they did it for an electoral process for democracy when in fact the Muslim Brotherhood wiped their you-know-what with electoral democracy and put into place Sharia, Islamism, and a completely corrupt leadership. So Biden is trying to find an area in which he can differ with President Trump. President Trump's been silent about Turkey. It's, it's been uh, frustrating for some of us, especially when we pulled out, out of 2,000 troops, we pulled out 1,000 just giving Turkey the green light to go in and slaughter some Kurds, our only ally other than Israel, that have stood by Americans in the past decades, the Kurds. And the ones in Syria, we sort of abandoned and pushed them towards Russia. I say sort of, we abandoned them. But that's one of the uh, 
few criticisms I have of the Trump administration's foreign policy. But it's interesting when you look at Turkey. Very important that we find out where the candidates stand on Turkey and NATO. Does Turkey deserve to stay in NATO? Does Turkey deserve to continue unchecked in its threats towards Greece, in its threats towards Israel, in its cooperation with Iran? Recent reports show huge amounts of uh, hundreds of millions of dollars bypassing the sanctions through gold trade. On and on. These guys are not acting. The Erdoganistas are not acting like they are a NATO ally, but rather enemy of the West. Now moving closer to China, along with Iran and otherwise. Let's talk about China for a second. What's going on in China? Not in China, but what's going on in the UN? The Trump administration, I think, showed another one of its strong cards this past few weeks as the Washington Free Beacon released a report that showed that the Trump administration was engaged in a behind-the-scenes effort at the UN to wrench control over key bodies from China. Remember, the World Health Organization was recently, and it seems now pretty permanently, defunded by the United States. And I heralded that as a strong move. The Washington Free Beacon spoke to a senior Trump official who said the whole WHO saga is illustrative of what the problem is. The fact that the Chinese succeeded in getting WHO Director Tedros and his folks to withhold scientific data of a pandemic putting China's domestic agenda freezing the Taiwanese out ahead of global health. That's our problem. And the Chinese have huge amounts of influence in multilateral organizations as it reaches critical mass. And they're mounting bully pulpit style type campaigns in the UN and elsewhere to defend its domestic interests. And he goes on, the report goes on to show how the United States looked at multiple multilateral organizations and more than five other members of the UN Security Council combined as China's influence continues to increase in each of those multilateral organizations. The Trump organization, the Trump administration has been working to shift that dynamic that evolved during the Obama era. Nikki Haley, our ambassador at the UN for a number of years, said China is constantly working behind the scenes to gain more influence globally. That's especially true at the UN, whether it's distracting from their own human rights abuses, manipulating to gain control of UN agencies, or bullying smaller countries to vote their way. And now we're seeing, as we talked about Iran earlier, we're seeing China and Iran, Syria, begin to cooperate economically, politically, and globally at the UN.
The Washington Free Beacon detailed attempts, for example, where the United States was able to win narrow victories in getting allies like Singapore into place on multilateral commissions in which China was trying to oppose that in order to put their own cronies on. They ended by saying that Vice President Biden becomes president and rejoins the Human Rights Commission and other international organizations without any kinds of demands for reform prior to that re-engagement. You're just going to affirm to other countries that the U.S. isn't serious about reform. Because Biden, he vowed to rejoin the U.N. groups such as the Human Rights Council, which the Trump administration appropriately abandoned due to its anti-Israel bias and inclusion of some of the world's foremost human rights abusers. You hear about Biden saying, we don't want to go it alone. It's not alone. It's with our friends, Israel. It's with the righteous who are free, liberal, believe in freedom and liberty, and against fascists and communist dictators. If, if joining with countries means joining with China which recent reports this week showed they were systematically wiping out mosques, hundreds and thousands of mosques. And as many pointed out on Twitter and elsewhere, where are the Muslim-majority countries speaking out about what's happening to the mosques in these country, in, in China? They don't care because it's all kleptocrats. Iran doesn't care as they work with China. Assad doesn't care. And even Saudi Arabia and others don't care. Even though they're antagonistic with Iran, they're also working with China. Last but not least, this week, Paris saw an act of terror committed by another ISIS supporter. A knifeman wounds two at the scene of the Charlie Hebdo attacks. He was armed with a meat cleaver, attacked and wounded two people on Friday, earlier this week, as he stepped out for a cigarette in front of the Paris building where Islamist militants gunned down employees of the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo nearly five years ago. The man was detained next to the steps of an opera house 500 meters away. He was from Pakistan and had arrived in France three years ago as an unaccompanied minor. And the interior minister of France said, we are still at war against Islamist terrorism. Take note, folks. Even the French now have enough spine to call it Islamist terrorism. Witnesses near the scene said, once again, hatred, gratuitous hatred. I was here five years ago, as Dr. Massas said. Five years later, we're here again. I don't know when this is going to end. Well, I'll tell you, it's not going to end until we get a systematic program in place to counter the ideas of political Islam. Because the radicalization of these folks will continue, and we're globalized. Here's this guy came as a as a minor from Pakistan three years ago, was radicalized there and here, not just there, augmented here. 
Remember, folks, an attack in Paris, November 2015, committed by half of the cell. The other half escaped, goes to Belgium to commit a second act in March 2016. They don't stay under the radar from country to country to country unless there is a network of support. The attack in 2015, I'll remind you, was against a magazine that pushed the margins. And those are the ones that need our defense, even though we might find them offensive, whatever it might be, regardless of the faith. That wasn't just Islam. Charlie Hebdo secularists attacked Catholicism, Christianity, the major faiths. And this month happened to be the trial of 14 alleged accomplices in the 15 Charlie Hebdo attack that killed 12 people. They wanted to avenge the publication of cartoons at the time depicting the Prophet Muhammad in the magazine. Charlie Hebdo republished the cartoons on the eve of the trial this month, a few weeks ago. And another attack occurs. And that should tell us more than ever that we have to stand by the freedoms that we have and protect them and defend them. The suspect was not on a security services watch list. He was actually, though, detained a month ago for carrying a weapon and was released with a warning. The weapon was a screwdriver, by the way. So when you look at this attack a few days ago, in the immediate aftermath, a neighbor said she saw blood on the ground and people pulling a wounded woman away into the office building. She said workers repairing the road told her that a dark-skinned man randomly hit a lady with a big butcher's knife in front of a mural that serves as a memorial to the victims of the 2015 attack. So right in front of the mural, the memorial, this woman was attacked. Remember I told you about the attack six, seven months ago in which the the Muslim serving as sort of a trainer of counterterrorism ended up attacking participants on the bridge right next to the training site, also in Europe. That was in London. Paul Marairai, journalist from the Premier's Lignus Media production company, told French broadcaster BFM TV it was his colleagues who were attacked. It's somebody who was on the road with a meat cleaver who attacked them in front of our offices. It was chilling. France experienced a wave of attacks by Islamist militants in recent years, and Friday's stabbing demonstrated the long shadow cast over the country by the Charlie Hebdo shootings. Bombings and shootings in November 2015 at the Bataclan Theater and sites around Paris killed 130. That's the the attack I was telling you about earlier. 
And then in July 2016, an Islamist militant drove a truck through a crowd celebrating Bastille Day in Nice, killing 86. 86 with vehicular jihad. Al-Qaeda, the Islamist group that claimed responsibility for the 15 attack, threatened to attack Charlie Hebdo again after it republished the cartoons this month. Now they've had to keep their magazine site a secret. The head of human resources, Charlie Hebdo, now no longer lives at her home, but is in hiding. But you gotta love the statement from the magazine's employees. It said, Far from terrorizing us, such events should make us even more assertive in the defense of our values. Far from terrorizing us. They will not be terrorized. And yet, we still see political correctness, political obsequiousness and appeasement making its way into modern-day behavior. Why is that? Why don't they learn from these events to learn that the only way to defeat ideas that are intolerant is to not tolerate the intolerant, to marginalize them, to defeat them, and to prove that their ideas are archaic, theocratic, and actually ends up being blasphemy laws done through fear in a democracy. And that has to end. So to all those fighting for freedom against political Islam, be you Muslim, non-Muslim, whatever you might be, we are on the front lines. And we will continue. We will continue to fight as long as we have breath in us. And last, I think depictive of this entire pathology, speaking of free speech, is an event by an organization called Americans for Peace Now. It's a, I believe, left-of-center organization that is a defender of Israel, but yet is extraordinarily critical of Netanyahu and the Likud and others in Israel. Won't get into those domestic politics, as many of you know probably where I fall on that. But what was illustrative this week was Americans for Peace now were having a Yitzhak Rabin 25-year memorial event. And it was a virtual event hosted by an actor and activist, Mandy Patinkin. They were supposed to have special guests and performances from the U.S. and from Israel. And one of them was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the leftist activist come squad member who usually stays away from discussion of the Palestinian issue, but she was on the docket for this. And then she claims that somehow this was just booked and she didn't know the details of the event or what they were honoring and that she was embarrassed that it was honoring Yitzhak Rabin. 
and Michael Koplow of Israel Policy 4M made some, I think, very appropriate comments. He said, It's an enormously disappointing decision by AOC to withdraw from the Rabin event. There is no such thing as a peacemaker without war, which is inherently nasty and blood-soaked. There is no such thing as peace without complexity and compromise. Her leaving sends a terrible message. Furthermore, at a time when Rabin's peacemaking legacy is under constant assault in Israel, this will be seen by Israelis as a statement that progressives will view Israel as illegitimate no matter what they do. Such a harmful decision AOC made in so many respects. And last, I think, is the most important statement. He said, if you can't recognize and honor the Israeli Prime Minister or recognize the PLO, ceded Israeli sovereignty for the first time in parts of the West Bank and signed a peace treaty with Jordan and was then killed for it, was assassinated for it, then there's not one Israeli leader who has ever met your standard. And I think that is just so apropos, ladies and gentlemen, that the progressives don't really care about compromise. They don't care. We see this in the way they treat Supreme Court picks as the honorable justice. Amy Coney Barrett was selected this week. We'll see if she gets the Kavanaugh treatment by the left, by the far left, the horrific treatment that Justice Kavanaugh got. We see that often their scorched earth policy to our greatest allies like Israel. And as they've done in cities across the country, they steal monikers of ideas that we all agree with, that black lives matter, but then beneath it is a radicalism, an anarchy that isn't really about coming to compromise and getting to areas where we can learn how to train cops better, weed out any racists that might exist that are a minor minority and not malign the entire police corps with that. All these areas, and I think the Palestinian issue is an example of how the left doesn't care about the reality and the truth often about what Hamas does, how it radicalizes the Palestinian communities, and how the Muslim Brotherhood has co-opted the Palestinian cause in order to use victimization, anti-Semitism, and hate of others, hate of Jews, in order to radicalize our communities. So AOC, you've again fulfilled your role as the puppet of the Red-Green Alliance of that alliance between Ilhan Omar and AOC in Congress and Venezuela and Iran, China and Iran, the Muslim Brotherhood and socialist fascists around the world. Congratulations. So much to cover this week. It's been great talking to you. Hope you have a great week with your families. Stay strong, stay healthy, and we'll see you next week on Reform This on the Blaze Podcast. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.